0: With the Israeli assault on Rafah continuing, the world's eyes stay fixed, with difficulty, on Gaza. Over 30,000 are dead, most of them women and children. President Biden recently said the Israeli operation has gone, quote, over the top. I think it's time to look at American foreign policy in the context of the Israel-Gaza-Middle East war. The United States has supplied both the weapons and the funding for this war to the dismay of many, given how they've been used, yet a clearer strategic objective has never been outlined, either by Israel or by the United States. What are Americans paying for? My guests today work for the U.S. government for 11 years on this very issue of weapons transfers. Josh Paul was a director in the Bureau of Political-Military Affairs in the State Department overseeing $150 billion in arms transfers and other security assistance. In other words, Josh Paul was one of the U.S. government's senior most arms dealers. Some of these arms were used by human rights abusing governments, but as he told me, the transfer of weapons to Israel was a different matter and followed a different process. Paul resigned in late October 2023, writing in his letter, quote, I believe to the core of my soul that the response Israel is taking, and with it, the American support, both for that response and for the status quo of the occupation, will only lead to more and deeper suffering for both the Israeli and the Palestinian people. In this episode, we talk about American foreign policy toward Israel, the process of transferring weapons and arms, where this war leads. And how ordinary people can make sure political leaders in Washington hear them. Welcome to Episode 15 of the Minority Views Podcast, U.S. Weapons and the Crisis in Gaza. Thank you very much, Josh, for joining
1: us. Thank you very much indeed for having me. It's good to be with you.
0: Yeah, good to be with you as well. So, my first question for you is for those who don't know, how long did you work at the State Department and what did you do there?
1: Yeah, so my most recent job with the State Department, uh, I worked in for over 11 years, uh, which was in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs, uh, which is the part of the State Department and the part of the US government, which is essentially responsible for America's defense diplomacy, uh, which means everything from negotiating treaties with countries uh, that enable US forces uh, to be present to uh, providing military security assistance, grant security assistance uh, to partners around the world to the tune in a typical year of about uh, $7 billion, uh, to authorizing all US or all major US arms transfers, uh, which you know in the past year, for example, the State Department just issued a release, totaled over $180 billion. Uh, so a, a significant chunk of change there and significant implications uh, for US foreign policy. Within the Bureau, my role was uh, as a director, and particularly in charge of the Bureau's relationship with Congress. Uh, Congress, of course, appropriates, based on taxpayer uh, receipts, uh, the funding that enables U.S. security assistance. So part of my job was arguing for that funding, Uh, and also uh, reviews and uh, gets notified of all major arms transfers. Uh, So part of my role was convincing Congress to approve those arms transfers, and within the State Department, uh, being a part of the approval process
0: myself. So you were approving arms that were going to other countries such as Israel? To countries around the world, that's correct. And what year did you start working at the State so Department? So I
1: started in that job in 2012. I had spent you know, most of the previous decade in and out of government uh, in related jobs. I'd worked in Iraq, uh, in the West Bank, but also uh, in Congress as a staffer uh, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense uh, in the Middle East policy shop there. Uh, so as I say, sort of a, a lengthy period dealing with these sorts of issues.
0: And you were a, on the like civil servant, right? You were nonpartisan. Correct, correct. I, I served under, I've served under four
1: different administrations.
0: And before I ask you what happened, can you please give us some context on weapons and aid that is transferred from the United States to Israel?
1: Yeah, sure. So this is a a long and deep relationship, uh, The you know in some ways goes back, you know, prior to even the foundation of Israel, but really starts in 1973, uh, when Henry Kissinger convinces uh, Richard Nixon, uh, to, you know, supply Israel with the arms it needed in, uh, Operation Nickelgrass, uh, that essentially saved its skin in the 1973 war. Um, then of course we come to President Carter and Camp David, uh, and that establishes a long-term commitment on the part of, Is- of America, uh, to provide Israel with foreign military financing with, uh, a uh, grant, you know, taxpayer-funded security assistance, which in the current ten-year memorandum of understanding between the U.S. and Israel uh, amounts to about three point three billion dollars a year. For context, uh, the State Department has a total in an annual year, a uh, regular year, of about six point one billion dollars in foreign military financing. So we're talking about more than half of that going to Israel currently.
0: So now people know, and then October seventh happens, this terrible uh, attack on Israel. What's going on at the State Department that day and in the subsequent days?
1: Yeah, so I think what is going on in the State Department is is two things. The first thing is just an emotional reaction uh, that doesn't take into account any of the sort of long-term foreign policy consequences uh, that might come out of that reaction. And I think, you know, emotional reactions are understandable. What happened on October 7th was horrific. Uh, At the same time, I think it is the job of government not to react with emotion. Uh, but to react with rational thought and analysis, um, you know the other thing, and then you know what happens out of that is this rush to provide arms to Israel, uh, and as part of that, uh, a quashing essentially of any internal dissent or debate uh, about the wisdom of this path and the impact that it is going to have uh, on Gaza and Palestinian lives. Uh, you know there had been up to that point within the State Department at least some space uh, for discussion for concerns. Uh, You know, there is a process to review human rights implications of certain arms transfers and of our security systems. Uh, And within that process, within, for example, uh, what we call the human rights Leahy vetting process, there had been some discussion about units of concern uh, that perhaps shouldn't receive Israeli uh, U.S. arms because of their track record. Um, But that was all swept aside after October 7th. It was simply, um, you know, let's whatever Israel wants, uh, let's get them as quickly as we possibly can. No time for discussion, no time for debate.
0: Why did you resign?
1: Uh, I resigned, quite simply, uh, because I hold the, I hope, quite uncontroversial view that U.S. arms uh, should not be used to massacre thousands of civilians. Uh, And that is what we have seen. That is what we had already seen in Gaza uh, by, you know, mid-October when I resigned. There were already two and a half thousand uh, Palestinians who had died. Uh, Of course, that's what we continue to see uh, now at 10 times that magnitude, uh, you know, almost four months on. So um, that was the basis for my resignation. I also resigned because I felt that the policies the U.S. were pursuing uh, in its security assistance to Israel, and this is something I had raised repeatedly, were not meeting their objectives. If the goals were to make Israel more secure, that wasn't happening, as October 7th showed. Uh, if the goals were to lead to security and to peace for Palestinians and Israelis, that wasn't happening either. Uh, so we were you know, pouring arms into a conflict where they were going to kill thousands in support of a moribund policy. Uh, and when I tried to raise these concerns, particularly in the wake of October 7th, again, uh, there was just no interest in hearing them out, not only within the administration, uh, but within those parts of Congress that touch arms transfers as well, uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee, Senate, for, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So I felt that you know this was an important uh, topic that, that there needed to be debate about. But the only space to have that debate clearly was not in government, but in the public sphere. And to raise those issues in the public sphere, I had to resign.
0: When you raise the issues internally, could you give us a little more context and information on what the response was from people in government?
1: Yeah, I mean, there has long been a a resistance, particularly at senior levels of government, uh, to getting involved in anything that might be seen as criticism of Israel. Uh, And I have seen this repeatedly in the course of my career. Uh, You know, when senior officials are going before the Senate for confirmation, uh, we have what we call murder boards, where we prepare them uh, for that confirmation process. And we always, you know, throw them an Israel question, you know, do you are you concerned about Israel's human rights record or something like that? And we prepare them essentially to respond by saying, uh, I think Israel, you know, is, is the best country, the best partner America to, could have, uh, you know, is above criticism, is above reproach. Um, and, and this is something that is embedded into the psyche and the culture. Um, you know, to give another example, I've been going back and forth, Uh, for many months with a senior official uh, in the Human Rights Bureau of the State Department, where every time we would issue a press release about Israel, it would come across the transom and the initial draft would say, you know, Israel, a country that shares our values. Um, And I would sort of go in there and and actually strike that because I think, and I think the track record right now is very clear, uh, I'd like to think anyway, that that Israel does not share our values. Uh, And yet uh, this senior official would go in there each time and put it back in. Uh, because you see it's just something we say uh, and there are various catchphrases. We have a quote ironclad commitment uh, to Israel's security etc uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. so so whenever you try to raise these issues, you can get uh, a degree of traction certainly with officials uh, at the working level. but as soon as you hit those who have political calculations in terms of their career uh their their futures, their reputations, uh, it's impossible.
0: So when you're raising these issues and these concerns, and you're essentially getting overruled by superiors, and presumably they're getting messages from their superiors, where is the message coming from to keep supplying arms to Israel and to not be critical in private or public?
1: Yeah, so I think I think there are a few drivers there. Uh, one of them is certainly Congress, right? And so when I talk about the political pressures on officials, certainly those who have to be confirmed by the Senate to achieve their positions. Um, know that criticism of Israel is a death sentence for their careers. And, and to give you an example, um, you know, President Biden from the start of his administration and Secretary Blinken uh, have said that they were going to put human rights at the center of foreign policy. Uh, there is a job within the State Department which, whose precise description is to put human rights in the center of foreign policy. It's the Assistant Secretary uh, for the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labour. There is no Assistant Secretary, and there has not been an Assistant Secretary uh, for democracy rights and labor under the Biden administration because the person they nominated uh, for that position at the start of the administration had once said something mildly critical of Israel and as a result never had a hearing, never got to the stage of having a hearing, and ultimately had to withdraw their nomination. Um, so so I think there is intense political pressure from Congress. I think there's also uh, political pressure from the White House. Uh, I think President Biden and those who immediately surround him uh, share a similar opinion. And President Biden has been very clear about this long before he was President Biden uh, in terms of his support for Israel and his commitment to Zionism. Uh, And then, of course, I think there are public pressures as well. And we see this in the uh, muting, the silencing, the censorship, uh, the repression that goes on around debate when it comes to uh, Israel-Palestine, the targeting of individuals, whether they be students, whether they be, you know, well-known professors or lawyers or doctors. Um, so I think both within government and really permeating a lot of American society, there is this this political pressure and politicized pressure, uh, you know, not to criticize Israel that is ultimately deeply damaging to America. Right? It's not only un-American, um, but but the nature of good government, uh, the nature of good policymaking is that you can have a free and fair and frank debate, and when you can't have that you don't end up with good policies. And that's where we are now.
0: Yeah, you said it's un-American. I was just thinking, doesn't this defy the purpose of a republic and of a government by the people and for the people? If the democratically elected government within that, one cannot even debate an issue as important as getting America into war, potentially, what's the point of having a government? Like, What are those conversations in government like then on Israel and on weapons?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very important question, and I think I, I'm very deeply concerned seeing the the nature of the debate over the last few months and the efforts that have been made to silence that debate uh, about our democracy. Right? Because if it turns out that there is one issue that you cannot speak up on, if it turns out that there is one issue that will be you will be shouted down for raising, uh, I, I guarantee you there will be other issues, whether under this administration or under other administrations. Uh, so I don't think the, the the current sort of context and environment bodes well at all uh, for for the health of our democracy. And that's one of the reasons I think it is very important for everyone who can to speak up on this, uh, to create that space for debate and to show that, look, uh, this is not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, We can do better than
0: this. Um, Yeah. You worked in the Trump administration and in the Biden administration. Could you contrast what it was like to work in both administrations on this issue in particular? And do you think President Biden has been worse or better, for American interests in the Middle East?
1: Yeah, maybe I'll start by by, by sort of just comparing what it was like in general working in the two administrations, because I think that's an important context. Um, you know, I think it has been incredibly busy for those of us involved in U.S. security assistance and defense relationships under both administrations. Uh, but it's been diff- busy in a different way. I think under the Trump administration, it was very hectic dizzy, uh, busyness. Uh, there wasn't a lot of clarity on what the policy was. In fact, sometimes you'd wake up in the morning and check Twitter and see that the policy had changed. Um, it has been under the Biden administration. I will say to its credit, much more structured. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. There
1: is a, a a much more well-driven, centralized policy-making process. The problem, of course, is that that also means it's very much harder to change the approach when you're in the Trump administration and there is this absolute chaos. And you know, everyone is heading off in their own direction, uh, essentially. You know, boosting their own portfolios. Uh, which is very much what you had uh, under the Trump administration. It was, you know, sort of almost a a, a I'm not sure how to describe it, but but circus. A, well, a circus, yes, but a circus in which every every ringmaster uh, is is leading their own circus, right? So you had the Secretary of State, whether it was Tillerson, you know, clashing with Jared Kushner. Uh, you had you know David Friedman, our ambassador at the time in Israel, uh, you know, clashing sometimes with Pompeo, sometimes with others. Um, so everyone was sort of going. And, and what that meant was that there was actually a fair amount of flexibility uh, at, at the level I was working in uh, to actually make an impact and to have an impact and to to drive some decisions. Um, you know, under the Biden administration, it's a, as I say, a much more centralized, structured, organized uh, approach to foreign policy. But what that means is that when they get it wrong, uh, there is no room for dissent. There is very little ability to shift the dial. So I think that's the fundamental difference I would make between the two when it comes to israel palestine specifically um i think they have they have both been atrocious but they've been atrocious in their own ways right uh, so we have to remember that president trump uh you know built uh moved the us embassy to jerusalem uh mm-hmm. put it there on the border right on the border with east jerusalem uh or in east jerusalem uh recognized the israeli annexation of the golan heights um and and you know supported strongly prime minister netanyahu and his approach um with President Biden. Of course, we see uh, his unwavering support for uh, Israel's actions in Gaza towards the ideal of a two-state solution. Uh, I am not convinced that we will get there on the current path uh, under President Biden, uh, but I think it is important at least to recognize that distinction, even if it just does amount to to a sort of a, a an aspiration. Uh, it's an aspiration that I don't think is there at all uh, in the Trump context.
0: However, the Biden administration extended All of those policies, um, the Abraham Accords, keeping the embassy in Jerusalem, and even the ruling that the illegal settlements under the U.S. view are not necessarily illegal under international law. So if someone is looking at these two candidates from the perspective of American interests in the Middle East, American standing, and also the 30,000 dead approximately in Palestine now, and they say there's no difference between them, is that a view that you accept? that potentially Biden is worse.
1: No, I I, I hear the argument that on this particular issue, potentially Biden is worse. You know, I think it's very hard to predict the future, Uh, but I I can certainly envision, and I think many of your listeners can envision, that under a Trump administration, uh, you know, there would be no issue with recognizing, for example, an Israeli annexation of the West Bank. Um, Whereas I don't think Biden would take that path. Uh, if that was to happen, of course, you know, that then essentially ends the, the hopes for a two state solution and puts us on track. Or, you know, the only option there, I guess, uh, or the only options are, are you know, either ethnic cleansing or a one state solution. Uh, we can agree or disagree about which is worse. Uh, you know, I think I think they're both pretty awful paths forward at this point. Uh, and I think it's very important that we work to shift American policy. Uh, and I think that's probably not going to happen at the presidential level. Uh, at least for another four or five years but but it can happen uh, at the congressional level and Congress does have a role here uh and so I think we need to focus for the for the you know first phase as it were very much on that sort of round of elections and at that level in our democracy
0: Prime Minister of Israel has said publicly and explicitly no two-state solution Israeli sovereignty from the Jordan to the sea you know yeah. that's yeah, science that's
1: right that's 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 of course you know part of the Likud parties his party's founding platform uh, is that there will be Israeli sovereignty from the uh, uh, Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River um and I think we should take him at his word when he says that I think he means it um you know Benjamin Netanyahu is not the only Israeli politician of course uh and there are alternatives out there but I think he's pretty well you know entrenched and while it is possible uh you know he's deeply unpopular right now but but let's you know not think for a second uh that whoever replaces him will be any better. But but the difference, I think, here is, right, that that the U.S. does have a role. Uh, And if you look at, for example, the the two-state model, uh, America could, the President of the United States could recognize a Palestinian state uh, in the 1967 boundaries today. Uh, He could take it to the United Nations Security Council and get UN recognition of Palestine today. And there is nothing the government of Israel could do about either of those things. These are both entirely within the American policy remit. Uh, so I think that you know it, it's nice that Benjamin Netanyahu has his policies, uh, but at the end of the day, these aren't his calls, and we have to recognize that as well.
0: But clearly, he thinks that when it comes to the relationship with the, with the United States and the Biden administration, he has greater leverage, and he's willing to exercise that, and he's willing to drain President Biden of domestic political support if need be. I guess what, what I'm what I'm concerned about is America is the superpower, so all those things yeah. that you've listed are very reasonable. But I can't think of any president doing it for the next five or 10 years. Why can't a president come out and say, we've given Israel $3 billion a year, tens of thousands have died now, and here's our conditions?
1: I, I think that's what we should be doing. Right? I mean, there's no there's no question about that. Um, I, I think that different presidents than Joe Biden might be doing that uh, at this point. Um, but, but that's not where Joe Biden is, unfortunately. Um, and so that's the reality, unfortunately, that we have to grapple with uh, as Americans is that our political leadership, I think, have have run adrift on this um, and are becoming increasingly isolated from the American public. If you look at the polling um, that's polling out even today that shows uh, a a significant, a supermajority of Democratic voters, uh, but more than half of the country, uh, you know, or half of the country thinks that uh, Israel has gone too far and that we should not be supporting the current track. Um, Over time, you cannot govern where there is such a disparity between where your position is uh, and where that of the democratic you know, people, uh, the, the people in the democracy are. So I think that gap will close, but it's not going to close overnight. It's going to take continued effort and momentum and energy uh, on the part of all of us who believe that we are on the wrong track to get us onto the right track.
0: In your heart of hearts, and I want you to tell me the truth here on what you actually believe, how does President Biden view Palestinians? Does he view them as human beings?
1: Uh, I've been thinking a lot about this, um, and you know, I think we we see that there is a clear double standard uh both in terms of how the u s. government writ large speaks about Israeli suffering versus how it speaks about Palestinian suffering uh, and how President Biden speaks about that suffering um I suspect, you know i I, I don't know President Biden. uh I've only met him once um that you know, at the end of the day, if, if there was someone standing in front of him, I think he's very capable of being, uh, you know, empathetic uh, on an individual basis. Uh, but I suspect, like many, I'm sorry to say in government, uh, when he thinks about the Palestinians as a people, uh, he simply does not bring to bear to bear uh, the same empathy that he does for the Israelis. I, I, I think that we've, we've got to recognize that at this point.
0: Your your colleagues who are in government or your former colleagues who are in government, um, how do you think, I mean, how do you think they sleep at night, frankly, when you're seeing U.S. weapons killing nearly 30,000 people um, and 90% of the population is starving and other bad actors are getting involved? I mean, how do you reconcile working for a government that's meant to be moral and that's meant to be a superpower and that's meant to be a shining city on a hill that is then funding and supporting what many people would consider genocide?
1: Yeah, so I, I think that's a really important question. I think there are broadly two different sets of answers to it, right? Depending on which camp you fall into. Uh, there was we're speaking today on Friday, the second of February, and this morning uh, there was a transatlantic uh, civil servants statement that was released. Uh, over eight hundred so far signers from both the U.S. government and European governments, uh, about a dozen governments all told, um, calling on our governments to to change course and saying that their voices are not being listened to. And I think those 800 represent just the tip of an iceberg of, of many, many thousands of people who are deeply discomforted uh, by current approaches of Western governments almost across the spectrum, with very few exceptions Ireland, Norway, Spain, you know, might be some of the exceptions uh, who, who, who are having trouble sleeping at night and who are wrestling every single day uh, with whether they are doing more harm than good in their jobs and whether leaving uh, is an option. I think, you know, many of these people would have left already if they could afford to, both in terms of their family, in terms of their healthcare requirements. Uh, But I think this is something that is keeping a lot of people up at night. On the other hand, I I would be misleading if I did not say that there are many who do not share that perspective. And I've talked to, you know, many of them uh, who have said, look, uh, you know, this is the nature of being a great power. Uh, Sometimes, you know, other countries or other peoples pay the cost in blood. And that's how it goes. And that's just how the world turns. Um, you know, I, I reject that sentiment entirely. I think it runs entirely contrary uh, to what we are supposed to stand for, uh, both as a nation and and, and as individuals. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think there is some of that thinking as well that, look, you know, this is just one of those moments in history. Uh, we'll get through it. We'll move
0: on. Yeah, I think that that is it's such a mistaken and immoral view and that the public yeah. and the electorate will deliver the results on that. Um, you know, the genocide case.
1: And, uh, sorry, if I may, sure. uh, just on that point, you know, uh, looking at the coverage today of this transatlantic civil servants letter, there is a U.S. civil servant uh, who's been been quoted by the press uh, without using that person's name. Uh, who's made the important point of that what differentiates this from, you know, many of the previous. And people have asked me, well, why didn't you quit over Syria? Why didn't you quit over, mm. uh, you know, any one of these sort of catastrophes that the U.S. has been at least tangentially involved in over the years? And and this person's point was, and I think they're absolutely right, uh, that those were essentially sins of omission. Those were things that the U.S. could have done to stop things from getting worse, but didn't do. Uh, This is a sin of commission. This is something that we are directly complicit in uh, through our provision of arms, through our support and protection of Israel at the U.N. Uh, It's our defense of Israel when it comes to its accountability at International Court of Justice, uh, ICC, whatever it might be. Um, so so I think that's an important point here, is that not only, you know, is this a question of uh, the U.S. having a, a tangential role, but we are directly involved in this. Uh, and I think that's that's another sort of, you know, nail in the coffin of that argument that, well, this just happens. This doesn't just happen. Uh, this isn't just a quirk of politics as the world turns. This is something that we are actually making happen.
0: What is Israel's strategic imperative here? Where does this end
1: yeah, so I mean, of course. Look, my perspective on this is that this is completely counterproductive for Israel. Uh, that this is not going to lead to peace or security for them. Uh, it is going to postpone the the you know peace or you know any sort of lasting solution to this conflict for a generation, if not longer. Um, and and at the same time, of course, um, you know going to isolate them further in the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. So I I, I cannot, you know, in my own mind, I I, I cannot see a strategic justification. That said. Uh, I think Prime Minister Netanyahu has his own political uh, life in mind here, his own political career. Of course, he's facing indictment in Israeli courts once this conflict is over on corruption charges. Um, And I think, you know, from his perspective, anything he can do to cater to those on his right, uh, which include, of course, ministers in his cabinet, but also a large number of the Israeli population, uh, particularly if you look at the polling who support this conflict. um, You know, I think I think he will do. Uh, I think there is also a a broad sort of lust for revenge. I I think there's been a dehumanization across, you know, as much as there has been perhaps within America, but 10 times that within Israel. If you look at, Mm. you know, the videos that Israeli soldiers are putting out on TikTok, uh, if you look at the voices, the words of Israeli political leaders, just this absolute dehumanization uh, of Palestinians, um, which I, I think blinds people. Uh, combined with a lack of reporting on what is actually happening on the ground uh, in the Israeli media, uh, absolutely blinds people to the suffering that they are inflicting. Um, you know but but I think that so you know, I, I think part of the Israeli objective here frankly, is to inflict suffering. Uh, it is to be vengeful. Uh, it is not to get to the sort of lasting solution that will provide them with peace or security. Um, you know, I think that occupation comes with a cost. Uh, and the occupied pays that cost in their freedom and their blood. The occupier pays that cost with their soul.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You want to expand on that? Again, I think you know when you spend when you send your children for generations to man checkpoints uh, in the West Bank uh, or around Gaza, uh, when you send them to you know fly drones that that kill uh, innocents, you know children on a beach uh, in Gaza. Um, this has a cost over time uh, as you as you build this sort of inhumanity that is needed to sustain this sort of military occupation for years and years and years. Uh, that that wears down, I think, on a society and on the psyche uh, of any nation. And I think Israel, in that sense, is paying its own costs.
0: Is this why there needs to be a constant cycle of hyper on one side and dehumanization of the other? Because you need a constant justification, a constant moral justification to tell oneself yeah. that what one is doing is noble and honorable and uh, strategic.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and I think you have to sort of, you know, consistently see yourself um, as, as the victim, right? Uh, which, of course, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, Israel is the powerful entity here. They are not uh, the weak entity here. Uh, and yet, I think many Israelis see themselves as You know, under threat uh, from Palestinians and from from Gaza, um, which, let's be clear, that there is, you know, certainly components of Hamas uh, who do pose some sort of a threat, but by and large, uh, nothing like the sort of threat that the IDF has unleashed in reality uh, in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, and in Gaza.
0: Do you think Hamas is how much is how much of a symptom of the occupation do you think Hamas is, and how much of it is just an autonomous bad actor? I mean, the Israelis have tried to liken Hamas to ISIS, which the Americans haven't followed. Um, right? How much of it is a, is it a direct consequence of the military occupation?
1: Well, I mean, let's be clear, right? Hamas has its roots in the nineteen eighties, uh, where it was, you know, in, in many ways supported in its original growth by Israel, uh, who used it as a tool. Uh, essentially to try and undermine the PLO's legitimacy, PLO, of course, being at that point, you know, greatly overseas, um, but but took this sort of minor offshoot of the Iqbal, uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and and turned it into, you know, the entity that it became. Uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, Hamas is, is there is a military element to Hamas, uh, but Hamas is also a political movement. And that's why, one of many reasons, why Israel's current approach is not going to work. Uh, Because at the end of the day, there is not a military solution to a political question. Uh, So I think I think, you know, that's where the whole Israeli argument really breaks down.
0: So if you were advising President Biden now or the U.S. government, what would you tell them that they need to do at this point in February 2024?
1: Yeah, so I think there are some very clear, very easy steps that they could be taking. I say easy. Uh, I, I don't necessarily mean easy, but some very clear steps. Uh, you know, one of those, of course, is to follow our own laws. We have in the United States laws that say you cannot provide military assistance to a unit that is uh, has a, a track record or has is credibly alleged to have been involved in gross violations of human rights. There were a number of Israeli units even prior to the war that were credibly alleged to be uh, involved in gross violations of human rights. We never sanctioned them. Now, looking at what is happening in Gaza, there are clearly many units. So I think that's that's one aspect. There are also, of course, U.S. laws that say. Uh, it is forbidden, it's prohibited to provide security assistance uh, to a country that obstructs the delivery of U.S.-funded humanitarian assistance. Again, uh, a law we are not enforcing. So just start starters, I think we can enforce our own laws. Uh, second, of course, a ceasefire. As I've said, there is not a military solution here. Uh, there has to be a political solution. We should be driving for that political solution. Um, I've made the argument that we should start with recognizing Palestinian statehood. Uh, I've been encouraged in the last week or so to see uh, the UK Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron, uh, Mm -hmm. start to make that argument. Uh, And for some reporting that there may even be some consideration along those lines within Washington, Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, And and that's not to say that I necessarily believe that the two-state solution is the lasting solution here. Uh, The answer is I don't know, but the answer is really it's not my decision. It's a question for Palestinian self-determination. Uh, what the future of Palestinian rights and, and freedoms look like. Uh, but but my belief is that if we don't start with a two-state solution, if we don't start uh, by creating some sort of parity under international law uh, between the two parties, so that it is not a question of, you know, what favours will Israel concede to grant to the Palestinians, uh, but rather what can two countries negotiate between themselves, uh, we'll never get anywhere. Uh, so I think that's, that's also something that we should be looking at.
0: And yet the White House publicly has rejected that approach in saying that they're going to continue the Abraham Accord strategy of getting regional normalization done, um, potentially with Saudi Arabia and a Palestinian deal as part of that. Do you think that's a mistake? Yeah.
1: So I, I think the mistake uh, for the last few years, frankly, has been this effort to um, build this normalization deal, building on the Abraham Accords, but, but not only building on the Abraham Accords, building also on... Uh, you know bilateral U.S. ties to Gulf states um, in a channel separate from the Palestinian issue. I think there has been this perception uh, coming out, frankly, both from Jerusalem and from Riyadh, communicated to the United States of late, look, the Israelis have a handle on this. We can move forward with everything else and pretend that the Palestinian issue doesn't exist. And I think that's greatly what led us to this moment, to this sort of collapse of, of normalization, this collapse of, of peace and stability and security in the region. Um, that is not to say that there is not a, a path forward here in which if the Palestinian issue is recentered, uh if Palestinian self-determination is recentered in a regional deal, that there is not space for a regional deal. There may be. Um, but I think it is not going to work because you cannot set aside uh this this issue that I think you know Arab publics do deeply care about uh and, and will not, you know, sort of forget about in a way that I I think many of their leaders and politicians uh, think or wish that they would.
0: Did you say Saudi Arabia was eager to get normalization even without addressing the Palestinian issue? Uh, Yes, I think
1: that's right. I think, uh, you know, Saudi certainly raised it in the course of normalization talks with the US. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, I think Saudi Arabia would have been quite happy had October 7th not happened and the following conflict uh, to move forward with that agreement on the track that it was on. Uh, I think at this point, we'd already see uh, an agreement with Saudi Arabia in front of Congress for ratification. Uh, if it was for not for the events that have happened for the last few months.
0: And their position now?
1: So right now there is polling that shows that 93% of Saudis oppose uh, normalization with Israel. Uh, I think that is something, regardless of, of how much power he has centralized, uh, that the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has to take into
0: account. I'm going to ask you about genocide because of the case. So genocide is a crime under international law. It's also a crime under US domestic law. And those yes. who have aided and abetted it can be charged. How worried are you? Or perhaps how worried should your former colleagues be for being liable for genocide, for aiding it, for abetting it, for inciting it in a fu- in the future, in a future administration?
1: Yeah, so there is there is a moral question here and there's a legal question here. And the moral question is of course they should be, you know, ashamed. Uh, those who are working hard to supply the arms to Israel right now uh, of their complicity in this. Um, When it comes to the legal question, you know, we just had uh, this case in the federal court uh, in California brought by Defense of Children International Palestine against President Biden, Secretary of State uh, Blinken, and Secretary of Defense Austin uh, that was dismissed by a judge uh, on jurisdictional grounds. And, you know, to be fair, the judge was very clear and very strikingly said. Uh, that everyone has an obligation to confront what is happening in Gaza and that what is happening there uh, is plausibly genocide, uh, which was, I, I think, a striking thing to see in a judicial decision from a federal bench in the United States. At the same time, uh, as, as became clear during the arguments for that case, uh, and as you noted, the only way to bring that forward uh, is for the government to prosecute it. There is nothing in the implementing legislation uh, under the Genocide Convention in the U.S., uh, at least as it is currently interpreted, that enables sort of civil cause. So, can we really see a future U.S. government turning around and prosecuting its current the, those who are in government now? Uh, I think that's 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 very deeply, deeply unlikely. Um, and I've I've heard that same scepticism. I think the greater concern for many current officials will be from the International Criminal Court, uh, which of course doesn't address genocide but does address war crimes. And this is a concern that we've seen in other uh, occasions where the U.S. has been involved through the provision of arms uh, in creating civilian harm, uh, that people do begin to sort of back off from these decisions and think, well, you know, my next holiday is in Italy. Uh, Do I really want to be sitting in my hotel on the Amalfi Coast when there's a knock on the door and the police show up to drag me to the International Criminal Court? That is a disincentive. Uh, So which is all to say, you know, I, I, I don't have, I'm afraid to say, much faith in the U.S. justice system on this issue. Uh, but I do think the international uh, rule of law has a, has a role to play here.
0: What would you say to a Palestinian who's listening to this conversation? Maybe their family members have been blown up, their home has been blown up, cousins of theirs are in refugee camps, they don't know when they're going to see their family again, their their neighborhood has been destroyed by U.S. weapons that at one point you were signing off on. What would you say to that person?
1: I mean, look, I don't know that there are any words that can in any way even begin to touch on the suffering, the pain, and the loss that has occurred for, first of all, the last few months. Um, but for years, America has been blind uh, to Palestinian suffering. So I, I don't know that I would have the right words. And I've spoken to many Palestinians who have lost, in some cases, Dozens scores of family members at the hands of American weapons, and as you say, American weapons that I've in the part in the past been a part of signing off on. Um, this is not um, this is not what we are supposed to be. this is not who we are supposed to be. Uh, but I think we have to recognize as well that intentions at the end matter less than outcomes. Um, and I think we owe a deep, deep, deep uh, apology to starters, um, change of policy, um, and and you know further steps to to all of those who are involved.
0: Josh, what do you think the ordinary person uh, could do right now in this year uh, to make their voices heard? Uh, maybe they're living in a swing state. Maybe they've already joined a protest or they were apolitical before this conflict as many people were. Your sort of average citizen, what can they do to make their voices heard and make sure the political leaders who are at the top of that food chain in Washington hear them as well?
1: Yeah, so I, I think the making your voices heard piece is actually more important than it sounds, and this brings us back to the start of the conversation, right? Uh, about the inability to speak up on this issue, and I think it's particularly important uh, for people who look like me, frankly, to speak up on this issue. Uh, for you know, white male. Uh, middle aged perhaps uh, approaching um but but for people who have privilege um to speak up on this issue because that creates so much space for others to then insert themselves and i think that's particularly true uh you know in the professional fields in in law firms uh, in medical practices uh, in colleges and universities um where a lot of the time there is there is real censorship happening uh, so i think first of all just speaking up and and speaking up and standing up for others Standing up when you see efforts to silence dissent, I think, is really important. Uh, I think there's also a lot that can be done at the local level, whether it is engaging with local press, uh, letters to the editor, that sort of thing, to to get the word out. Uh, Whether it is engaging with local politicians, um, you know, the further you go down the ballot, uh, the more your voice is heard because the fewer people are voting for that position. Um, and, And I think change does start from the bottom. Uh, at the same time, I think there is also a need for better national organizing uh, around this issue to sustain the momentum uh, and the energy that exists right now in American society. Um, and I think folks uh, will see that happening in the coming months.
0: One of the things that really worries me, Josh, is the prospect of a regional war. We've seen Iran, mm-hmm. Jordan, Turkey, Pakistan launching airstrikes. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how how this could be contained and for that not to happen? Because frankly. If there's a larger war that America is involved in, there is no predicting or stopping that. And I don't want future kids to go and die in the Middle East the way they have been for the last twenty years.
1: Yeah, no, I fully agree. Um, And and I mean, it's not just American kids dying, right? I mean, you know, and and I've I've mentioned the story to a couple of other folks, but um, you know, I I did a lot of work in Iraq, and at one point, uh, there were some Iraqi officials. Uh, senior officials, uh, generals who came over to the U.S. for training. uh, And I took them up to uh, Manhattan, uh, to New York. And we, uh, you know, one of the things we did was we went to the 9-11 memorial um, and sort of, you know, looked into those sort of deep pits that are up there. Uh, And it struck me that most of the people I know uh, or knew who died as a result of the wars that followed that day were actually Iraqi. Um, You know, some of them kids, some of them officers. you know, so I think that's a a repeat of history that no one wants to see, uh, and I think that's true for the most part. I don't think the U.S. wants to get involved in wars in the Middle East. Uh, I don't think Iran, frankly, uh, is keen for a, a significant conflict with America. Um, you know, I don't I don't think anyone, uh, shy of you know perhaps a few who would benefit from the chaos uh, at the senior levels, for example, of the Israeli government, uh, are, are particularly keen for that sort of conflict. So I'm really hopeful that it can be avoided. Uh, but I think the problem is the longer the Gaza conflict goes on, uh, the greater the risk that something happens, uh, and, and we saw that just in the last week, right, with the uh, uh, the uh, Qatar Hezbollah probably strike on uh, U.S. forces in Jordan, um, which is not to say that that has not been happening and they've not been trying to you know strike those forces for a long time. And the U.S. presence there has nothing to do with uh, you know what is happening in Gaza. But the longer the Gaza conflict happens uh, and continues for. Uh, the greater the risk that something goes wrong along those lines, that then leads to a broader conflict. And I think that's in no one's interest.
0: Do you think we get a ceasefire in the near future? As in weeks? Um, certainly.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are certainly positive signs uh, that one is being seriously discussed. Um, I, I, I'm I, skeptical that it will be a permanent ceasefire. Uh, I think there's certainly a hope that we can get another short term, uh, and maybe even more than short term, maybe even a few weeks. Um but I have not seen any signal from Israel uh, that it intends to permanently stop uh, its campaign in Gaza. In fact, in just the last few days, uh, yesterday, we saw uh, the Israeli defense minister say uh, we are moving all the way down through Rafa. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said we are not going to stop until we get all of Hamas, whatever that means. Uh, it's really a meaningless statement. Um, so so I think there's good reason to be deeply skeptical uh, Um and in the meantime, of course, I think we have to confront the fact that we have a humanitarian disaster ahead of us uh, that could well exceed uh, the suffering that we've seen so far. You know, if we're talking about between twenty-five to 30,000, if not more, who have died as a result of the force of arms, uh, we know from historical records uh, that that tends to be, if you look at sort of the conflict to post-conflict casualty counts in these sort of circumstances, you could be looking at a 10 to 1 ratio when it comes to the impact of disease and starvation, uh, and that is all ahead of us. Uh, so I am I am deeply, deeply concerned about the days to come, regardless of whether or not there is a ceasefire.
0: How concerned about, are you about potentially botching the day after, and that, you know, the thinking not being there in terms of reconstruction and peace?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, it's hard to see uh, how Gaza reconstruction moves forward. Um, you know why will why would countries invest as as some countries have I've told apparently Secretary Blinken uh, in the reconstruction of Gaza if it could all just be destroyed again in, in ten years? Um, how will you reconstruct Gaza if Israel continues to maintain the same chokehold on what it calls dual use items, items like you know piping for water uh, and other construction materials? How, how will you rebuild? Uh, it will take decades, um, and in the meantime, of course, you have you know people living in tents for years and years. That's not uh, feasible. So it, it's really a dark period, and I think very hard to see uh, a way forward. And that that's something we're going to all be grappling with for many years to come. Uh, of course, the people of Gaza uh, more than anyone else.
0: What can people read that you would recommend? Are there any books or articles in, in particular that you could recommend for people who, who want to read more, learn more, and, and inform themselves? So there,
1: there are a few. Um, you know, I, I mean, my, my go-to book and it's not really a read it's and it's it's pretty hard to get a hold of but there's a, a book called uh the atlas of the conflict uh that was put out in 2010 2011 which is a great collection of maps uh and demographic information going back to the 1800s showing you know the disappearance of palestinian villages by decade for example uh great 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 resource um there is uh there is um norman finkelstein's book uh and this is actually i think the book i read in college that began to change my mind about this conflict, uh, which is um, me, uh, the, the truth and reality, I think it's called, uh, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, which is a, a great sort of you know view back uh, to what actually happened in 1948. Uh, on which note, I think uh, the movie Tantora, uh, which is out, is also a good one. Um, and then there is a fantastic book called uh, Victory for Us is to See You Suffer, Uh, which is um, a a Palestinian perspective uh, in terms of, uh, and a life lived, uh, very, very powerful uh, book. So I think those would be the ones I'd recommend.
0: Josh, Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the Minority Views podcast. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And uh, I hope we can speak again in, in better times.
0: I hope so too. Thanks so much for tuning in again to the Minority Views Podcast. We appreciate having you here. Feel free to like, subscribe. You'll get notifications when new episodes come out. We got more guests coming, more conversations happening. And we'll see you again next time, right here on the Minority Views Podcast. Cheers.